Hey, everybody. Welcome to Filmography Podcast, episode one. My name is Jason, your host. Today, we're talking about Christopher Nolan's directorial debut from 1998 following. Uh, I have a guest host, first one today, Dan, a.k.a. Duff, from Titanic Minute fame, uh, joining me to kick off Filmography Podcast. Uh, Welcome. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Uh, How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm hanging in there. You know, did, did work, ate, walked the dog, ready to talk about... Uh, a 70-minute directorial debut film. It's called Following. It's from 1998. It's uh, director, writer, producer, and edited by Christopher Nolan. Um, it's not, we should point out, it's not The Following. Right. Right. Not The Following. Which I've never seen, but I've... Oh, wait. I'm thinking... Sorry. I was thinking of The Happening. The Oh, with Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but The Following, that was a Kevin Bacon show, uh, the internet tells me. Yeah, apparently the following was. Uh, oh, it was. He was trying to catch a cult serial killer or something like yeah, that, wasn't it was he? From uh, Kevin Williamson, who I believe uh, wrote Scream. That was from a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, it's not that. Nor is it the Marky Mark the Happening movie. <laughs> where where the plants attack us? Yeah. Yeah, following right. Not the following or the happening or anything else with Mark. Mark Wahlberg is not in this movie nobody's in this movie that you know unless you're just really really into it or one of the principals uh john nolan he's kind of recognizable isn't he yeah yeah i guess that's that's true and what a what a lucky turn for christopher nolan that it's his uncle right is um oh is it i'm pretty sure i thought uh, well all right so oh yeah You're, he's the paternal uncle of christopher and jonathan nolan which i did not know there we go so you know, with a lot of hard work and an already established family member, you too <laughs> can crack into the filmmaking industry. That, of course, is not to discount the tremendous talent that is Christopher Nolan. Uh, following, so 1998, $6,000 budget. It is a black and white film. He, Christopher Nolan, uh, Chris, do we just call him Chris? I'll just call, I think you gotta we'll, say Christopher we'll, pr- we'll pretend that we're friends and we're on a casual nickname basis. I wonder what his middle name is. Batman. Christopher IMAX Nolan. <laughs> Made this uh, on $6,000 in black and white. It was uh, shot entirely on weekends because everyone had day jobs. It was shot over the course of a year, I believe, because of the timing. There's, uh, I think it's on the Blu-ray, but it was also on YouTube. There's an interview. Uh, He was filming corporate films at the time, like training videos and things like that. And so that was his day job. And and then on weekends, then weekends him and basically his friends like this is more or less a very elaborate student film absolutely and he had access to some some equipment that even the most intrepid new filmmaker isn't going to have access to so, so again just uh i think one of the interesting things is uh one of the production companies Syncopy, uh which chris founded with his wife emma thomas and uh amongst it so they, that company's gone on to produce uh, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, and it also produced the wonderful Batman, Batman, <laughs> wonderful Superman reboot, Man of Steel, which, of course, is the third best Superman movie. What a title to have. <laughs> you know, and uh, I will go... I'd, I'd like to, I'd ac- actually like to say 
that I think Superman Returns is the third best Superman movie. The one with that was Brandon Ruth, right? Uh, sure, I'll believe that. Yeah. And Kate Bosworth and yes. uh, Kevin Spacey as Luther. Oh, you said his name. Uh oh. <gasps> I actually kind of liked Man of Steel. Not to get off on a tangent here, but actually not all that bad. Uh, I like when Superman is uh, what's the word nice and uh, not a dick. It just seems like they took the lessons from the Dark Knight trilogy. Said, what if Superman were kind of brooding and a dick and he didn't like anyone? Yeah, he does. It's not great. It's not great. It's it's not bad. Then again, I'm I'm of I'm of the mind that good and something you like don't necessarily have to be the same thing. No, you're you're correct on that, but with Man of Steel, it's neither for me. <laughs> Cuz it's it's just a dour slog of a movie. Yeah. So that's really I guess all the uh the kind of technical notes on on the movie. Oh, it does I suppose maybe the the principal cast members Jeremy Theobald, I hope I'm saying that right, is the uh, the young man. Alex Haw, Cobb, and then Lucy Russell, uh, the blonde. So Can we refer to the two leads as Tom York and uh, <laughs> full-sized Peter Dinklage? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I, we can. I don't know if that's uh, a slur or not, if I say full-size, regular height, Peter well, Dinklage? Peter Dinklage is... His in his own way, his own full size. That's true. So this might be Peter Dinklage times two or P P D squared. I don't know. I know what you're. I know what you're getting at, but I don't know what the uh, uh, non little person Peter Dinklage. Let's I suppose just sort of get into recapping the film here. So we start off with a young Tom York. We don't know who he's talking to just yet, but he's explaining that basically he's about to recap um, and be the narrator. The following is my. Explanation. Well, more of an account of what happened. So he's he's talking to somebody, recounting about how he follows people. Oh, spoilers, by the way, people. Wow, what an ending! Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah, thank you! Oh, thank you, Mr. Blow the Picture for me! So Radiohead lead singer is talking about how he follows people around in a totally not creepy, super, super normal way. He said he says, uh, was it no women or he doesn't follow women? Well, he said he he said he follows anybody. So implying that it's not. And then he says it's not a sexual. But it's thing. not a sex thing. So it's OK. Yeah. So he's just he's he's uh, he has a code. <laughs> he's got a code. He's got a code. He lives by uh, he's pan creepy. Right. He's in his 20s or at least it's implied that he's in his 20s and he's trying to gain inspiration for being a writer and through the course of his uh, walkings around, he eventually runs into this gentleman named Cobb, the aforementioned uh, Alex Haw, Peter Dinklage standing on top of Peter Dinklage in a trench coat. <laughs> Cobb basically notices that Bill, which is the alias that Tom York, the young man, gives Cobb, has been following him around, and, and he confronts him. He calls him out on it, and he pressures him. Cobb's really, really good at reading people and knowing kind of how to say the right things to uh, press the buttons he wants. Don't, don't you think he's... Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but he this kind of gets into a hallmark of, I would say, criticisms of Christopher Nolan and that things don't make a lot of sense sometimes. And that, as we find out eventually in this movie, he is conning Bill or man with no name, 
So he he's conning him. But at the same time, Bill already was a, a lurker, a peeper, a voyeur, whatever you want to call it. So that's quite a coincidence. Or does he have a, a gaydar for uh, followers? Can he tell? It's like, this guy, this guy likes to follow people. I'm going to use him for my my con it's yeah i mean you're spot on there and that's absolutely something that christopher nolan's known for and if it's a tremendous tremendous string of coincidences that allow this plot device or movie to work this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen or the third thing doesn't happen nothing works and so apparently Cobb's a burglar among other things that we'll find out later but um he carries this bag around and he shows bill what's in the bag and it's just stolen swag, some CDs. Uh, I forget whatever's all CDs are easy to fence. Yeah, he's a, he's a small-time crook. He's working. He's a working crook. He's got to go out and steal every day in order to, to get by. Or at least that's, I suppose, sort of, again, the implication. The implication. That we have here, and he just casually invites this stranger he's just met, just casually invites this gentleman to go burgling with him, which is a fun thing to say, to say burgle. Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah. Candlesticks. They steal candlesticks later, which is just one of the most cliche things you'd possibly steal, right? Like Who buys candlesticks? People in London, apparently, or anybody with lax enough security that they they attract burglars. Like are I haven't been to a pawn shop in a while. They're just full of candlesticks. No, because I assume they're they're such a hot item that pawn shops can't keep them in stock, right? I guess people are just buying them left and right and then getting stolen. It's really it's a it's a black market. Uh, kidneys and organs and candlesticks, I guess. So, hey, hey, let's go rob some places. So they go to a place to rob, and Cobb doesn't just get off on, like, taking stuff. He likes to kind of wander about and, and feel out who these people are. So he, he rifles through their stuff. He moves things around. He finds the box that everybody has. Yeah, shoebox of memories. So he finds it, and he explains what the box is to Bill. Then he dumps it out on the floor, and his whole shtick there is... He wants people to know that he was in the apartment. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life. Making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. You take it away. You show them what they had. Now this doesn't go according to plan. The... At least one of the residents of the apartment, or flat. We are in London, so flat. Does is flat mean any apartment in London? I don't know. I've never, I've never been there or from there. No, I have no idea. International audience, reach out. So they get caught. Cobb's in a in a suit and tie. Remember, but Cobb pretends that he's an agent showing the flat. He's like, "Oh, we're just showing the showing the flat." She, oh, but I'm not selling. Really? I better call the agency. And so that's pretty smooth under pressure just super like again this guy if if he wasn't a criminal should probably be a politician which i guess is sort of the same thing so never mind <laughs> so they they escape unscathed uh although because somebody's come up the sca- stairs they uh, jam up to the roof because you know they, they don't want to be caught at this point Cobb suggests to bill that he pick out the next place they go and basically bill can have a go at it so uh, Bill's thought is, I'm going to bring Cobb to my place and let him tell me all about the person that lives here. Bill's flat's door has the Batman logo on it. Yes. Is that 
now somebody out there could put on a tinfoil hat and turn that into a conspiracy theory to some degree, right? But what a coincidence that his independently produced feature-length debut has a reference to Batman in it. Yeah, and I don't know if they put the Batman logo on there or what. So yeah, so they break into Bill's apartment. Cobb immediately is like, this guy's a loser. I'm not going to steal from this guy. He's down on his luck. He sucks. And, you know, they do go to another apartment. Um, they go to the next apartment. They have to break the window to unlock the door from the inside, and they go in. And this is where sort of the, uh, well, the implication is the implication is it's a beautiful woman's apartment. I, I don't find this person particularly attractive, but. I mean, she's conventionally attractive. She's not ugly. Is that <laughs> is that conventionally attractive? Uh, I mean, I think she's a good-looking person. I'm not offended by her presence. Anyway, yeah, and again, this is where one of the big coincidences come in. Cobb brings Bill here simply to get him enamored with this woman. So there's pictures of her all over the place. They rifle through her underwear drawer. They move an earring from her um, dresser or whatever to he hides it in the piano bench, which comes into play later. They steal a bunch of stuff, and then they leave. They go back to Cobb's place, which is this, well, it is a, it's just a rundown abandoned building that apparently Cobb's living in. Um, and Cobb, this, there's a little aside here where Cobb hands him a beer, but he shakes it up right beforehand. What a, like, just what a dick, right? Yeah, pretty dick move. If you ever had any soft spot for Cobb, now we're just like, God, this guy sucks. Um, <laughs> so he says, hey, let's go to dinner. Don't worry, it's my treat. Well, at dinner or lunch or whatever, Cobb's treat is actually pushing on to Bill a stolen credit card that he says, you know, hey, Bill, sign this, sign your name on this card, and it's yours. It's as good. Bill takes the card. He pays for lunch. Uh, they they get out of there because the uh, woman from the first flat comes and this kind of annoys Cobb because he he really wanted dessert. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He want he wants some pie or some cake or something. Well, it's a free meal. It's a very nice place that they were at. You can, Bill's just scarfing down food because he's this person of limited means. That's free meal. Hell yeah, I'm gonna eat a lot. So Cobb's annoyed. He tells he tells Bill, you know, like, well, try not looking like a burglar. Why don't you cut your hair and shave and put on some nicer clothes and this is you know bill takes that to heart now at this point they kind of separate a little bit hey listeners this is jason doing the post recording editing since we recap the movie linearly i realized that the reveal here won't have the same uh, gravitas as it would if you were watching the theatrical cut of the film but i want to make it clear that bill takes the swag home he's looking through it he's falling in love with the blonde seeing her pictures and everything he gives Cobb a call uh, to let him know that he's going to attempt to fence the goods um, and it's revealed then at this point that Cobb is involved with the blonde. Meaning he took the bait and he's hooked. He's going to hang on to the stuff, pretend to sell it, give me some money. You may even get most of it back if you're lucky. God, it's perfect. The photo's worked. I even got him to cut his hair and change his clothes. So does that mean you'll tell me where you hid my earring? No. And I wouldn't wait for your panties either. He's too embarrassed to give those back to you. Shit. Uh, and then Bill falls in love with this woman that they've just burgled. Now he's following her, and he's breaking his very first rule, which is to not make it personal. He's he's picked a target. He knows where they live, which is, again, one of his rules. Once you know where they live or work, you, you stop following them. It's also a sex thing now. Now it, now it is a sex thing. So he's fallen down the rabbit hole. Cobb's a real, real bad influence on this guy. Um, so now he's following her. And not only does he follow her, but he approaches her in this seedy uh, basement bar or club or something that she's at and the implication the implication here is that she is involved with the club owner who is a pornographer 
which is bad apparently but she uh you know she entertains uh bill's advances to a degree and and sort of uses her feminine wiles to uh to trick him into stealing some racy photographs or what are supposed to be racy photographs back from this gangster club owner person who doesn't have a name he's uh the bald man i believe is his official character name yeah just just the balding guy he's um i think according to the commentary he's actually the dude that owns the bar that they shot it in um yeah he's just credited as the bald guy on imdb so she she uses her her charm and her supposed good looks to convince bill to to steal from this guy i'm sorry we're gonna say something no all right so he asks Cobb if he wants to do this Cobb's like i forget does he says no right or so basically he says he's not going to fence the stuff that they stole from the the blonde woman and then Cobb beats him up for some reason and i really wish they have a an argument on the rooftop yeah they have an argument on the rooftop Cobb beats him up. He stuffs some uh, gloves in his mouth, which is actually where I think where the movie originally opens is Bill coughing these gloves up. We glossed over a bit of exposition where Cobb explains why he's getting someone to work like he does as part of his con of Bill. A crime that brutal. An old lady beaten to death. If they even think it's me, they're going to try and pinball me, aren't they? No, we've got to have someone else. I mean, I've even told them there's someone else. And if he's got an alibi? Well, he's a loner. He's perfect. I mean, even strangers that have seen him before aren't going to recognize him because he's had his hair cut. No, he's our man. And then a bit more later as to why specifically they're trying to frame him. A crime that brutal. An old lady beaten to death. If they even think it's me, they're going to try and pin bill me, aren't they? No, we've got to have someone else. I mean, I've even told them there's someone else. And if he's got an alibi? Well, he's a loner. He's perfect. I mean, even strangers that have seen him before aren't going to recognize him because he's had his hair cut. No, he's a man. Bill decides to do this job himself. Uh, he goes to the bar, and in the uh, the burgling of this uh, establishment, somebody catches him, and Bill has a hammer to defend himself, which he does to the detriment, I guess the implied death, of the person that caught him. He recovers just a shit ton of cash from the safe along with this envelope of again the supposedly racy photos that the blonde told him not to look in he gets back to his apartment he's just freaking out because he he killed this guy and looks in the envelope and you know what's in the envelope not pornography either that or it's the lamest pornography ever it's the it's the softest of softcore pornography they can be <laughs> i'm sure somebody out there's into it and you know you do you man so he goes over to confront her and she sort of lays it out for him. Uh, this was all a trick to get you framed for a crime that Cobb supposedly committed, which was the murder of this old woman. You know, he, he looks like Cobb. He's got the same M.O. as Cobb. He, I mean, I guess that's that's really it, right? He, he yeah, uses a, just, yeah. They just need like a random guy to, who kind of looks like Cobb or looks enough like him and is involved in the same kind of petty theft. And this is kind of where the accumulation of all the coincidences come into play, right? So, Because not only does Cobb have to find this guy, not only does this guy have to want to do all this, not only does this guy cut his hair and change his clothes and shave, it's just, it's incredible that this this plan 
it's not well laid. It just happens to work. So this at this point, he uh, Bill is like, you know what? I'm calling shenanigans on this. I'm going to go to the cops. I'm going to tell him the truth. And the truth shall set me free. And the one and the last cutaway that we're revisiting out of order is Cobb works for the bald guy. Um, and he's rubbing out the person that was the blonde who was a witness to a murder that the bald guy had committed in a similar fashion with a hammer. And that sort of ties it all together and sort of how the movie ends with Bill telling the policeman all this and the policeman saying, like, we don't have any unsolved murders of old women and you have this hammer that has two types of blood on it and you have a box under your bed with all these keepsakes that were taken from this woman's apartment and you have this stolen credit card. Well, that was Cobb. We used it to pay for a meal in a restaurant. We found this at your flat. It was Cobb who stole it. Is that your handwriting? Yes. It's it's the accumulation of like the half dozen to a dozen necessary coincidences that you know ultimately have to occur in order to this for this movie to work. I just I just laughed out loud, it, you know, because the first couple of times that I watched this, it didn't quite click when he was telling her the old lady thing that yeah. he was talking about her. <laughs> this is the last time I watched. It, I was like, I laughed out loud because yeah, it's, it's, oh. it's darkly funny in a way. It's 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 there's a lot of I don't say a lot. There's there's some pretty choice moments in here as far as direction or film production or or narration narrative just yeah reveals the the, he's this is one of the things i love about christopher nolan is his movies are very much like magic tricks you know the the more you watch them the more you can see how the mechanics are in play but the very first time yeah you're you're pretty blown away with how this whole thing came together and it's only later that you can really nitpick which is i think (laughs) what we can do now if, if you're if you're up for it so well, so I mean, so that's the movie in a nutshell. It's it's a it's a story about this guy that frames another guy for a murder that he hadn't yet committed. Yes. Let's Chris, let's uh, talk about Christopher Nolan now. What do you think of Christopher Nolan when you just somebody says, "Hey, what what are your thoughts on Christopher Nolan?" I'm generally a big fan. I know that he has a lot of detractors. Maybe not a lot. I don't know. It's hard to tell because it seems like whenever seems like whenever someone is really famous or something is really famous eventually there's a backlash to it you think we you think we got there with him oh i there's definitely no one backlash there has been for a while i i think dunkirk restored i i think that movie is pretty universally well received but i mean there's you know there's dark knight rises haters and there's interstellar haters and in general um I think he makes tremendously entertaining movies. There are few peers who make as consistently entertaining movies. And when I say entertaining, I mean both summer blockbustery type stuff and also just captivating movies. When I when you talk about his faults, and the, one of the bigger ones is that a lot of his movies make no sense in parts, or maybe there'll be elements of it. I mean, I, I don't want to say all of them, but like this one we we talked about how the there's a a number of coincidences that have to align in following but also there's 
a lot you have to take for granted or certain plot holes in like Interstellar, Inception, um, even like the the Batman movies. No, you're you're right there. It's part of what you have to, like you said, suspension of disbelief. You're not going to get through any movie in a hundred percent realistic manner, right? Unless it's what was that documentary that they made us watch in college about high school in the fifties? Was it just called High School? Yeah, I think it was High School. Yeah, like that's about or like my dinner with Andre or something like that. Would you would you draw the distinction between like those being films and Christopher Nolan making movies? Well, I don't really think there's a difference. I I just think that a lot of the time, I think number one, anyone who makes movies that are popular or from for the masses will end up getting some type of backlash, such as uh, I mean Spielberg or George Lucas. So there's that. I mean, beyond that, he's not without his faults or his criticisms. Like they're 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 big and loud, and they try things, and they're not afraid to fail. And yeah, uh, for the most part, they don't. You know, people pay to see them. When he's probably one of the few names out there still at the moment where you talk about it's hey, it's a Christopher Nolan film or it's a Christopher Nolan movie that's coming out. It's not. Yeah, he's one of the. Also, I think he's one of the few directors where his name is known by a good chunk of the population and not just film nerds i don't think the majority of the population knows who ryan johnson is honestly i couldn't name you another ryan johnson movie off the top of my head right now uh looper son yes looper i know what that is i've not seen it yet looper is excellent you should see that stat i was gonna say it's been a long time since i've seen memento or insomnia I remember really liking Insomnia, and it's been so long since I've seen Memento. They're all really enjoyable. They're all really well done. They all have, they have great effects and great performances. Uh, aside from following here. And Chris Nolan even talks about this in interviews that this is... I didn't really enjoy following all that much, but I feel bad ragging on it because it looks incredible. Oh, it's way better than I could do with $6,000. Right. It, it's really, really, it, it looks great. It feels like a, a really well-done student film, and that's more or less what it is. He worked within his means. Yeah, he worked within his means. He shot it on Saturdays after working a full week. With primarily natural lighting and... and all. Na- I think it's all natural lighting, which is insane. I th- yeah, I think he did say that. Well, no, because that scene in the basement, he had to light somehow. Because that that uh, that bar was like yeah, inside. Yeah, you're right. There must be some, but primarily natural lighting. And he talks about that. They always did stuff near windows because they they kind of had to. Or he liked shooting on rooftops because it's about one of the only places where you can shoot outside where it's semi-private. So it's I got when watching following it was like oh not that this is a bad thing but this was very clearly scripted out shot for like the production on this movie is probably one of its best like you could tell they knew exactly so they didn't have to waste film they knew exactly what they were doing i'm not certain but i'm sure they storyboarded the hell out of this there wasn't a lot of room for improv because they couldn't risk i mean they it was it shot on film and i that's another thing i like about nolan is his fondness for the chemical format and like the physical format right he likes shooting on imax number one he's uh, one of the few who has that power to say I'm going to shoot on film. And number two, he's one of the last kind of film holdouts, which I I admire to a certain degree. But it, you know, you're you're fighting the tide, man. It's 
it's going to come a point where any distinction that you're still able to make when something is shot on film is, is going to be able to be taken care of with software. I remember way back in the day, and I think this put me off of digital film for a long time. Remember the movie Collateral? E- with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx? Oh, oh, the Michael Mann movie? Yeah. That movie... Are you, so you're going to say something about the film or the look Just, of it, right? But it, that movie was awesome. That, that movie was good, but it looks like it when a TV has motion smoothing on. Oh, okay, yeah. Like, there's a lot of it when you look My at it. My parents and uncle love that, by the way. It's, <laughs> everyone's parents and uncle loves that motion smoothing. The soap, the soap opera effect. It's just the worst. They fawn over it when we go over to his place for like a Thanksgiving or something. How come our TV doesn't do this? Because I turn it off on yours because I care about you. Yeah, it's because it, uh, everything isn't live. That's why. But yeah, I, I saw that and there's just a lot of spots where it was really obvious it was digitally shot or there were digital cameras used. And it was like 2005, 2004. 2004. I... But hey, Nolan's a big film holdout and admirable but you're you're fighting a losing trend man yeah i don't know if it's ever going to go away it's certainly going to be a losing battle like at some point the the 70 millimeter road show for hateful eight was one thing like i went to one too and it, the like you hear the clicking right the the latham loop that you, that we miss so very much in the theater going well, experience I mean, you can i mean i could tell because there's like a hair at some point on the <laughs> on the film but yeah, but I mean, I, I assume that he shot on well, film. Well, there's only... And they did a high-resolution scan, because, how, like, how else do those IMAX laser projectors work? Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, there was the road show, and then there was just the general, regular release of Hateful Eight. So he shoots on film. His movies are vastly entertaining. You know, he's... Uh, any themes that you know from uh, other Nolan movies that you picked up on here? I mean, there's clearly the... The nonlinear editing, which comes, you know, in Memento, it's certainly there. And the, in addition to linear, there's also the idea of, like, what's, you know, what's true and what's not. In this movie, you don't necessarily know what's true, and that's true in the Prestige and Inception, Interstellar. He, he does this in The Prestige. He does this in Following. I'm sure he does this in other movies, and I'm just not remembering any good examples. But he basically tells you what's about to happen. In so many instances that you don't realize until later. Yeah, it, when you look at it a second time, the clues are there. It's kind of a puzzle. Maybe not necessarily a puzzle, just kind of a, a treasure hunt. And yeah, the, the clues are there, but like when you know how the magic trick works, do you become a little less enamored with it? It's not quite as magical. When, well, not when you know what's coming. I mean, I've seen movies. I go back and watch movies all the time where I know what's going to happen, but they're still good because they're... They're well-made yeah, movies. Yeah, it depends but... how well it's woven into the plot. And, you know, for all of its coincidences that have to line up, I think following is very well-constructed in that regard, in that it's, e- even if it takes a leap of faith to believe that all these things would happen as intended, once you get beyond that, like, all the pieces kind of lock together very well. Yeah, you don't realize that that leap is being required of you or that you are making it until after you've already made it. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. And I think that and that's to his credit as a filmmaker. There's I think. some fair criticism of Nolan, but I do think that some of it is you don't really realize the faults in it until you think about it really hard or you've seen it a couple times. And I don't really think that's valid. The big one they always point to is in the dark night 
how ridiculous the Joker's plan is and how <laughs> how much has to happen according to plan. Because it's all part of the plan. For mm-hmm. the Joker's plan of getting caught, whatever. And you know what? You're absolutely right. But the first time you see that, I I didn't think about that. I don't, I don't think anyone really did. I, no. The, and the opening sequence of The Dark Knight with the bank robbery, like the sheer amount of things that have to go right in order for that to be pulled off correctly. Yeah, like the school bus. like back- The guy has to be, yeah, the guy has to be standing there to get hit by the school bus that's back again at the exact correct time that all the other school buses are going by and nobody notices that this one just kind of butts in line. It's stuff like that that I don't think hurts the story too much. I think there's some Nolan movies where it hurts it a little more. Like, again, not to I'm I'm picking on a lot, but I think Interstellar is kind of the pushing the boundaries of the coincidence leaps of faith. But yeah, I don't have a problem with it most of the time. What is your favorite theater going experience of all time? Do you have one? There's a handful that stand out. Like if I think back when I was a kid, who framed Roger Rabbit is a big one. And the uh the Star Wars re release in ninety seven for the first for New Hope. I mean, I saw saw all of them, but just because, like, that was a really good crowd and, like, everyone was really, like, there were a lot of people dressed up. And uh, I was in eighth grade, which is, like, prime uh, Star Wars infatuation for a young boy. The two standout theater-going experiences for me were, the, the first one's absolutely The Dark Knight. I remember being in just a fantastic mood prior to going. It had the first trailer for Watchmen, which we didn't know because we hadn't seen it yet was bad, but that trailer and that smashing pumpkin song was pretty awesome. We were sitting close enough to the, and you know, now there's just an ESPN alert that came up on my phone sitting close enough to the screen, but not so far away that, you know, when that shot hits right at the beginning of the movie and you just blasted in the face with cinema, I guess my second one that just kind of sticks in my head was, I remember it was senior year of high school it was at the Orpheum on State Street for a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show on Halloween. And That's a good one. It was the first and last and only time I've actually got to see Rocky Horror, like with how you're supposed to see it, with people shouting stuff. And man, that was that was great. They need to they need to bring that back. So uh, Orpheum, I know you're listening. More Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight on Halloween. You got one ticket sale right here. But um, all right. You know, we've been talking for longer than following is. <laughs> the actual movie. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to end up cutting a bunch of this out. Uh, so the at-home audience is going to have to pick up the DVD for the deleted scenes later. But um, uh, anything you want to say uh, or plug before we kind of wrap this up? Uh, hey, do you like Titanic? I love Titanic. Hey, that's good. Even if you don't like Titanic and you want to hear it uh, broken down... <laughs> Minute by minute, check out Titanic Minute. Me and uh, two of our good friends, we literally go through Titanic minute by minute. Uh, some sort of podcast you're saying? Yes, it's a podcast, titanicminute.com, at Titanic Minute, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, yeah, we're as of this recording, we're just about halfway through. I believe <laughs> it's going to wrap in September of 2018. If you don't like Titanic but do like dunking on James Cameron, <laughs> thank you duff for coming on the inaugural 
first episode of Filmography Podcast. I appreciate your time and effort here in getting this thing kick-started. I'm sure your internet celebrite will do nothing but ensure a tremendous following for me as we move forward for this. So uh, this is Jason from Filmography Podcast. Uh, you can find me, by the way, uh, www.filmographypodcast.com, at filmographypod on Twitter, uh, also at filmographypod on Facebook. Hope to have you back uh, the next episode, episode two. We'll be talking uh, with a new guest host about Christopher Nolan's second movie, Memento. And until then, you know, take care. I will follow you.